all. Welcome to Rigged, the random idea generator cast, where we randomly roll out characters, story, and world-building elements and craft them into a finely tuned tale. We value collaborative storytelling, especially that which comes from D&D and RPGs in general. So, we've decided to take random elements and craft a story. It can be the germ you use to write, an adventure hook for your campaign, or even the basis for your character's backstory. We don't care what you do with it as long as you enjoy it. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your host, Matt. We are two-thirds of the Brothers McGill. And together, we'll be using dice and spreadsheets to tell you a story. Let's get rolling. Warning, if you haven't listened to the last episode, this is going to make no sense. At least go back to the narrative cast for this arc, the one right before this, if not all the way back to the character creation. If you don't want the nitty gritty and the behind the scenes stuff, just go back to the, the episode before this and you'll start the story. If you've been listening right along the whole time, just enjoy. We'll pick up right where we left off at the cliffhanger. It finally nods its giant spider head. And why don't we do our, our next roll here the for the, the twist roll. Matt, give us a D20 roll to see what the twist is. That is a six. Wow! Yeah. That's perfect. Okay, so uh, six is powerful beast joins party. That is that is the the most perfect setup for that that's insane okay so matt powerful beast joins party go ahead and pick up right there all right so they uh the trio which is now a quartet begins to to move on through the forest merle is he's still in front he's still leading the way and you can almost tell that they're getting closer he's um pointing things out landmarks things that he remembers from his time with the wood elves and he just kind of gets a little spring in his step before they they keep going he just he stops he takes out his little uh his book his little leather bound tome and moves his uh his four-leaf clover to the next page apparently the page he was on was help a uh, a helpless creature something along those lines so he's you know, one in the wind column, and then he, he moves on. He puts that back. So they're continuing on to this. It's not a, a, a big fortified settlement, but there's a, a small, like, uh, a small wall built around some trees, almost to kind of just keep out a direct attack so that they're not overrun um, and they can mount a, a quick defense if uh, if something comes up. But there are some wood elf guards that are standing outside the gate. There are three elves, spears in their hands. They're very, like an ornate wooden armor, and uh, they look very, very regal. They don't see a whole lot of combat, it looks like. It's uh, very ceremonial. But with those long-tipped spears, I, it's it's pretty evident that they're, that damage will be done if um, if there is any combat to be had, Merle 
kind of stops, puts up his hand to signal everyone behind him to just kind of hold up a second. And he turns back to the party and he says, listen, guys, I'm going to try to talk our way in. They're, they're definitely not going to talk to you guys. You're humans and a giant spider. Like, don't even try. If I can get us past the gate, we may be able to kind of get through unscathed until we reach the, you know, the big fortification. The king of the wood elves is is staying. So he walks up to the to the trio of of guards that are standing in front of the gate, and he put first he puts out his torch because he doesn't need the torch and he doesn't want to give the illusion that he has anyone with him that would require. Um, any kind of extra light. So he walks up to the gate and approaches these, these three wood elves that they're, while they're on duty, they're not Buckingham Palace guards on duty. They're, they have a bit of a personality. They're, they're chatting and, and um, kind of ribbing each other back and forth, trying to find a way to pass the time. Because of that, Merle kind of sneaks up on them while Merle is, He's aware that he's an undead wood elf. He's not so aware that he doesn't, that he understands that people will have a reaction to the way he looks. He's not, he doesn't look like a full, um, fully healthy individual. He's, he's definitely got a little bit of that kind of zombie um, pallor to him. So he scares him quite a bit, actually. Uh, one of the, the guards kind of falls back into the other two. Merle reaches out with his hand, quickly helps the, the guard back up, brushes him off, says, no need to be scared. I'm just, I'm a fellow wood elf. I'm here for some passage. I would like to to see the king to uh, pay my respects. I mean, it's it's been a while since I've been to this one particular encampment. And, you know, we all know the the reverence that that our culture holds for for our, our leaders. And I just, I have to get in and I want to take my gratitude to the King for what he does. He's done for us. These guards, obviously they don't get a whole lot of travelers, but he's a fellow wood elf. He might be a zombie, but he's part of their clan. So they kind of frisk him, pat him down, make sure he's not carrying anything that is too, um, too dangerous. And opens the gate. Now Merle walks through. And then as they start to close the gate behind him, they're looking off. They're looking the other way. So they're not looking at Merle himself. He kind of motions to his companions. Kind of go off to the to the right because he's seen a little weakness in their fortification, so to speak. The plan, at least, is that he's going to let them in from that side. The other three are working their way through the brush. They see a spot where they can kind of get close to that fence without being seen by the guards who have now gone back to, you know, talking about the ladies in the, uh, in the wood elf tavern and whatnot the, the night before. Merle makes his way along the fence. No one's really paying him too much mind because he's, he's obviously another wood elf. And as he gets to the weak point, he kind of stops and starts to pull away some of the, the sticks and branches that are making up part of that, that wall. 
And at this point, Nick, I think we're going to roll and see what happens. An environment roll. Yeah. That is a 13, which gets us, what is that? Cave-in. A cave-in. Okay. All right. So as he's pulling this fortification for this wall, what he doesn't realize is that it's actually the, the wall and the ground. It's all one big structure. So by pulling this, he's actually weakening the foundation as well. And there's obviously something underneath because it begins to, um, the ground just begins to, to fall away. And of course, with his luck, not only is he caught in that, uh, that mess, but so are his three companions that are on the other side of the wall. Sure. There's a big opening and now they can get in, but they're also, um, lower than everybody else in a little um, kind of underground tunnel. And it definitely made a lot of noise that uh, is bringing some onlookers. All right. So I will pick up. Of course, no one else really knows that Merle is in here. Only the guards really saw him come in. So to, to probably most of the people in this town, in this city, to most of the people, it just sounds like something gave way, something collapsed, so, some of the supports didn't work or whatever. So for the most part, they they think that they can, if they can get out of there quickly enough, then they won't actually be caught. And they, they find themselves in just kind of a set of underground tunnels that might be ways to navigate even though wood elves are pretty against being underground, it, they're super uncomfortable. They they also see the value in having those tunnels if they need to escape at what at some point. If they are overrun, they could be um, they could be escape tunnels. They could be to curry uh, messages back and forth from certain buildings. But they they as they kind of get away from that hole in the ground, they realize this is a very big wide web of tunnels running underneath this establishment they make their way down one tunnel and wood elves do not have complete dark vision they only i think i'm pretty sure they only have low light vision so there are torches kind of interspersed around in these tunnels it's not the best lighting Merle can see pretty good with them, but it's still, they, they reach dark patches for Bradshaw and McCulloch. So they, they basically just have to trust that, that Merle is leading them the right way. They make enough turns and kind of take enough side passages that they're, they're far enough away from where they, they caved in that they feel like they're not going to be caught by anyone. And they, they kind of stop and assess and they really, they need to, at this point, there, there's kind of, it's kind of a monkey wrench in the gears. They need to figure out what the heck's going on, where they are, how they're going to get out of there, and what Merle has planned, because the whole point of bringing him was to get them in there. And yeah, sure, they're now they're in there, but they're underground, and they don't know where they're going. In fact, they probably wouldn't be able to find their way back to the hole at this point that they came through. Merle 
takes a minute and he thinks. In his mind, he traces this the turns and the movement that they took. And he's he's trying to overlay a, a map of the city above with where they fell in and where they, they ended up turning and all that. And he thinks that they're not far off from the baths, which is a, a natural spring with running water. And it's got a drain somewhere. So he thinks that he could make them, he could get them to these baths. And then they can get up through the hole, the basically the drainage, and and get back into the city. And at this point, still nobody really knows that they're there, so they'll be even less suspecting of them. So he he takes a minute again, and he he, look, he thinks about the map in his head, and thinks about if he were to get there, which direction he would need to go. So he he runs he runs the plan over in his head a couple of times. And looks back and sees that everyone is waiting for him. And he realizes the spider's not there. The spider didn't fall in. The spider was way too big to fit in these tunnels anyway. So he feels a little guilty about that. But he did bring the spider to this area. So maybe eventually when they, they clear out the area, they'll, the spider will be there waiting. He kind of puts that aside. He points it out to his teammates and, and, and they just brush it off. They don't, they, they're not heartbroken over it. And Merle leads them through this set of tunnels. It's only a couple of turns before they start hearing running water. He hears it. He's happy with it. He's comfortable. He's going to go and, and follow that path the best that he can. And they reach a point after a couple more turns where there is clearly running water coming down in front of them. And the path gets narrower and narrower to the point where they, they're actually crawling on their hands and knees. But Merle makes it up to the edge of this water, and he can see flickering torches behind this running water. So he holds his breath out of habit, even though he doesn't need to. He holds his breath, and... He pokes his head through and he immediately pulls his head back. And he says, well, we found a way out. This is a waterfall leading into the baths, but it's a pretty far drop down into the baths. And there, it looks like the standing army is just having a sauna day because there are anywhere between five and 10 what look like pretty kitted out soldiers. I mean, their armor's not on, it's stacked up on the side, but they're in there. So we can crawl backwards since we can't turn around or we can get through here and maybe do something about it. There's whispering back behind him. He can't really hear it because the waterfall's going on. And eventually McCulloch kind of taps him on the boot and says, we're doing it. We're, we got to go through. We got to do this. Hopefully, if they can take out all of these guys, there won't be that many guards left or anything to, to protect the king when they get to the king. So they might as well go in and drop a house on everybody here and then make their way out. And hopefully they won't alert too many people in the process as well. So they try to, as stealthily as one can, drop headfirst into this, this collecting pool of water. And they climb out and... 
the all of the 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 half naked wood elves are shocked to see him. And let's do a roll, Matt. Let's do our our roll for battle. That's a sixteen. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. They are enthralled by the enemy. By the bodies of the enemy. By the naked. I mean, they are so cut. They're they're so chiseled that they just can't look away. Now they they crawl out and. They realize now, uh, McCulloch and Bradshaw realize now, it's not really a three-person party when it comes to fighting. Because Merle's kind of useless when fighting. They've only seen him ever do healing spells. So he seems to be... In fact, he's a liability because he may start healing the people that they hurt. But they're they're kind of taken aback by this. But the, it's both sides are surprised at this point. So Matt, take it away. The party itself has their weapons drawn. They are they're ready to go. There are there's a short sword in the hands of McCullough, and Bradshaw is in the process of conjuring a a spell. The wood elves that were taking the bath, obviously, they are extra surprised and caught off guard because they have, they have nothing at this point. You see a couple of them make a mad scramble out of the baths and to their equipment. There's obviously no time to put on any armor, but they grab the sharpest implement they can find and then turn around. A couple of them will, uh, you know, knock some arrows into, into their bow and uh, get ready to fire. The party there's not really a whole lot of places to hide in this room, but they try to find as much cover as they can so that they're not in the direct line of fire of any, uh, of any arrows. McCullough just kind of sends up a little prayer to his God. Let me do your work today. Let me uh, send this, this group on to your, your glory and your destiny. And, fulfill their their life's purpose and then he just stands up and he charges there's arrows whizzing by he's obviously kind of doing a little uh, a weaving pattern throughout the the room to ensure that he's not in the direct line of fire he feels this white hot bolt just kind of fly right past his shoulder and he while he's not going to turn around he realizes that Bradshaw, for all intents and purposes, has his back. He also realizes that Merle is nowhere to be found. He's just kind of hanging back, just out of the fight, whether he's just waiting for someone to heal. McCullough just doesn't have the time to, to figure that out. He then begins to just cut through elves. They're still in a sense of shock. But he definitely has that upper hand. One, two, three, they just kind of fall to the wayside um, with no armor. It's, it's pretty easy. It's, you know, a, a severed limb here, a slit throat there, and whatever elves he's not attacking, he sees either burst into flames, get shot with a lightning bolt, things along that, that line from the sorcerer behind him. He can also hear Bradshaw barking out instructions 
on your left, on your right. Don't let them flank you. And as he's making his way through these just body upon body, they're just falling at his feet. He he stops and he just kind of looks back when there's just a slight lull in the battle. Um, he sees that the uh, the wood elves are they're kind of cowering in the corner at this point. He's he just took on a mad rage, something you definitely don't usually see from a cleric, but his whatever prayer he used must have filled him with some sort of battle prowess that um, overtook him almost like uh, Wolverine's berserker rage from the X-Men comics. McCullough stops, takes a breath, kind of collects himself, sees that the remaining three wood elves are cowering in a corner near their armor, but they don't dare stop and put their weapons down to, to don anything. He sees Merle, just inched from behind a pile of stones that's at the back of the room. Merle's walking up and he's he's just kind of almost like a field medic. He's checking out the bodies, seeing their, their status. Are they dead? Are they alive? What can we do to help these people? Because obviously that is Merle's main purpose right now, is to help. There are plenty of them that are just way beyond any sort of, of healing. But there are two or three that Merle stops, lays his hands upon the wood elf, and just whispers quietly, I'm sorry, brother. And you can just see a, a slight slight green glow, and the wood elf begins to, to sit back up. Obviously not fully healed, and still a little groggy, but he sits back up. Merle quickly tries to move on to the next one, but uh, McCullough comes over even quicker than Merle can move, puts his foot on the wood elf that was just healed, and then buries his blade in its chest. He gives Merle a look, kind of that uh, parent looking at their bad child moment, and uh, just shakes his head really quickly. The other three wood elves in the corner... Honestly, short work is made of those three because Bradshaw hasn't stopped. He is continuing on, and they are just fried corpses by the time um, McCullough turns around. What they don't realize is in all this time, above them, machinations were being made for the king himself to come down and take his his time in the, in the baths, you know, his weekly cleaning as the last wood elf falls and they turn towards the door. McCullough puts away his book as he writes the names of these wood elves or what should be the names of these wood elves into his book to absolve himself of the, the sin. And you hear the stone door kind of great against the uh, the floor as it opens and in comes the king he's still dressed obviously they don't dress undress until they get into the room and that's how you could tell he's just in you know the the bright greens and browns of the wood elves but these are more spectacular in nature you can 
he's obviously royalty. He has this uh, gold leaf crown on. And at this point, Nick, let's, let's roll and see how we're going to wrap this up. All right. The resolution roll is a seven. Ooh. Interesting. Okay. Okay. A selfish resolution. Yep. So, all right, I got it. So the king walks in with the rest of his guard, and they see that the first contingent has been slaughtered by these three surprise chuckleheads kind of out of nowhere. And he's really kind of taken aback because no one no one would expect anyone to get into this area. They obviously did not know of the the weakness of of the that tunnel system leading directly into this this bathroom. So the king is shocked. The guards all step forward. They are all in armor and and with swords. And the king is just kind of standing there in his robe. He looks aghast at first, but then he kind of recovers. You can see a certain level of um, of confidence and regality there that in in a different situation, if you were like an outside observer, you would see, wow, that that's that's why this dude is king. Like he he's he's solid. He keeps his cool. He knows what he's doing. And he, he does just that. He kind of he steps forward and the guards move to cir- to circle him and he holds up a hand and he stops them. And he addresses these three in front of him. And he says, well, you're obviously here to kill me. So at least give me the the decency of knowing why. And Merle looks ashamed and looks down at his feet. And McCulloch steps forward and is about to speak when Bradshaw puts a hand on McCulloch's shoulder to stop him. And Bradshaw takes a step forward. And he says, you don't deserve to know. You get no right. You have no right to know why we're here to kill you. The fact of the matter is, is we just took out a dozen guards without breaking a sweat. And you have, what, five or six here? You're not going to survive. Put your weapons down. We will end it all with as little pain as possible. And if I made each character roll a perception check and they passed, they would see a little a little glint and a half smile on the king's face. And the king kind of pretty much just ignores Bradshaw and turns to Merle. And he says, you used to be one of us. And Merle looks up, kind of shocked that the king would even address him. And he says, yeah, I was. And, and, and until something happened, I, I was cursed and, and I died and, and, and I came back. And the king says, why are you working with these people who would kill your people? And he says, they, they've, they've promised that they can send me off 
to the great beyond and I can, I can rest. I can finally rest. My soul can finally find its home. And the king kind of looks at, looks at him with empathy and says, you know, we have healers. You know, we have some of the best magic users in, in this land. Why wouldn't you come to us? And again, Merle hangs his head and looks ashamed and says, I, I didn't want to dishonor you or, or our people. And the, the, the king kind of just shakes his head and tisk tisks and says, come back to us. We'll heal you. We'll make sure your soul is taken care of. We have plenty of priests to honor your cause. Come back to us. You help us out and we'll make sure your soul is, is at ease. And honestly, you don't have to die immediately. We can use you. You would be valuable to us. And there's a little, a little glint of hope in Merle's eyes. And he, he kind of looks over at Bradshaw and uh, McCulloch and they're, they're staring daggers at him. They're, and they're they're trying to, none of them are telepathic, but they're just trying to say, don't you dare. Don't you dare. We had a deal. We, we'll make sure you're taken care of. You can't trust these people. They're trying to convey all of this just through their looks. Merle looks at them, looks at his book of etiquette, looks back at them, looks at the king. And tosses the book at the feet of McCulloch and walks over to the king and kneels in front of him. The king motions once with his hand and the guards pour forward. And as Bradshaw and McCulloch are cut down to pieces, the king kneels and whispers in Merle's ear and says, you did the right thing. You will be blessed and taken care of. Please, bathe with me. And they, the guards clean up the mess as the king talks to his newest, new, newest renewed subject about what use Merle could be to the kingdom of the widows. I'd say that was that was a fairly selfish ending. Yeah, absolutely. You you went in a different direction than I thought you were going to with that. I couldn't think when I saw selfish, I wasn't sure. I don't know. I wasn't sure where to go with it. I wasn't sure who would be this the most selfish. I initially thought it would be Bradshaw, but I, I don't think that it would be enough of a satisfying bump at the end yeah. to have Bradshaw be the one who was most selfish. Cause as, as we said in the character creation, he was the least, he was the most aloof, the least likable for lack of a better term of the characters. Yep. So I had to give us something, you know, you don't necessarily need a happy ending, but if you're looking for one, the selfish angle falling in Merle's favor is probably the best way to go. I mean, the other, the only other thing I can think is 
that McCulloch just goes bananas and that would be selfish for him because he's feeding his deity. He's feeding his, his need, which is honestly where I thought you were going to go with it because it seems like he has just most potential for a selfish act. Yeah. Selfish in a good way, almost. Well, selfish in his mind, uh, selfish in a good way in his mind. Yes. Right. But I mean, he was going to, I mean, they were going to end up killing everyone anyway. Right. So what, what more could he do? Exactly. To, to have been extra selfish. True. Because even, even if, I don't know, even if we could explain away him not fulfilling his promise to Merle and laying, laying Merle to rest, that not only does that break the promise with Merle, that, that goes against his being a grave cleric. That goes against his his order. True. So I don't think that could have worked. No, and I, honestly, I would think if McCullough was going to perform that selfish act, he would not only kill everyone, all the wood elves that he was that were in his path, but he would include um, Merle with that. Yeah, like everyone would be would kind of feed that that anger maybe even bradshaw yeah i just i had a good one just now that i think would have been a good ending they kill the king that it's taken care of whatever they run everybody out of the encampment or whatever it is and mcculloch decides this is a pretty good place to set up a temple for my god Hmm. so rather than finish the job and bring it back to the dude, the the noble who hired them. And rather than finish the job and advance into the, the, the secret organization or whatever, he kills Bradshaw as well and starts building up this place as a temple. That, I think that like is primo, primo selfish. I think that works really well. Yeah, I think so too. I think that goes above and beyond just killing to feed his his religion and, you know, starting your own sect is yeah. Yeah, that where he is top dog. Like if he joined, he'd still be answering to Bradshaw. Now, oh yeah, and and who knows who else? Yeah, that too. Cuz he he'd be bottom of the barrel. Exactly. But if he starts one, he's he's top dog immediately. And I think I think that would follow his personality very well, but I also think that what what we put down, I can see Merle doing that. I, I think McCulloch. No, the way what you the way we did wrap up. Oh, oh, my ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that as that that's something Merle would do. Absolutely, he would. You know, he weigh the pros and cons in his uh, zombie type brain. And realize that this book that's kind of been commanding him since he returned from from the dead is maybe it's not necessary. Maybe if if he's allowed a second chance, he doesn't need this uh, this tome of atonement, and he can just uh, you know live that extra life and just return to what he what he knows. Yeah. So and it's it's more um, it's uh, that and. They both 
technically both paths would have gotten him to where he wanted to go. Yes. But if he can take a path that doesn't involve like turning over his own people. Sure. And it gets him in not only in the eyes of whatever elf god they follow, but it gets him redemption in the eye of the eyes of the actual king. Then like, yeah, of course you're going to take that. Sorry, I screwed you guys over, but this is this is way better. Yeah, I mean, he he had a, an end goal in mind that was a good end goal when he thought that was the only thing that he could do, really. Yeah. And then when presented with another option, a different path realizing that the road he was traveling didn't need to be taken. There really is a better path, and he obviously chose wisely. Yeah, and the goal, or the the result of these two guys dying, who would have slaughtered all of these people, versus all of these people dying, who are just trying to live, it's that philosophical argument of, if there's a train filled with a bunch of people and it's set to go on one track and that track is broken and the the train is going to crash and everybody's going to die. But you have the option to pull the lever to switch it to a different track. But on that track is someone that, you know, they're stuck on the track. They're, they're tied down, whatever. Do you make that choice? Do you make the choice to kill the one person, even though you know them, even though they may be a loved one, to save the lives of a a full train of people? Yeah. You know, it's not quite that because the train full of people were his people. So I guess it would be the other way around. True, but they they were his people at one point, but... When he met them again, he didn't necessarily immediately identify as a wood elf, aside from using it to his advantage to gain access. And maybe that was a a self-imposed restriction. Sure. As what the king said, maybe they're they're not super frowned upon in the wood elves. And he was just ashamed or whatever. Yeah. And honestly, maybe his book of manners and etiquette that he disposed of Maybe he read ahead to the end and it said, you know, make the right choice, save a village, save a, prevent the imminent destruction of, of everything. Yeah. If, if you have the option to, to save people, you do it. Exactly. But also I thought you were going to go the other way around. I thought you were going to say he found this book of etiquette and like one of the things and like just a throwaway comment or something in a chapter somewhere along the way was that. People don't like the undead, period. Oh. Just a generic, super standard comment. And that's what gave him the idea that, oh, I'm undead now. My people are going to be disgusted or horrified or ashamed or embarrassed or whatever. Sure. So that's where he got the idea of his self-imposed exile, essentially. Yep. I think it's either that. I I think that's a great little piece, but I, I could also see it as... You grow up as a wood elf. Elves in general are very life-based creatures. Right. And I imagine especially wood elves. So they they would have almost a natural aversion to the undead, you would think. So I can see that being kind of his teaching from, from his youth. Maybe that is the kind of general unspoken 
idea kind of in in the wood elves but the king sees more value this the king can see past that and see how valuable having someone who's undead can be in terms of i don't know espionage or or whatever which is why he became the king obviously sure i made his way to the top in that regard i think it's interesting that you you left off where you did the ending is still fairly open because I mean, what is that King going to keep his promise? Is that King going to use Merle in that capacity or are those prejudices still real? And the King just realized he could, he just ended that conflict before it began through diplomacy. And now he can go ahead and, and cherry pick the rest. Right, yeah. Did did he just pass a, a really good deception check? Yep. And charisma his way out of it. Or are we going full on like Walking Dead where he's like, oh, I could have an army of undead soldiers who can fight and last a whole heck of a lot longer. So he uses Merle as patient zero. Yeah. And Merle's disgusted and horrified that, that it would happen, but he has no choice at this point, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and that's Maybe that is the thing on the king's mind because he realizes that there are enemies out there that just because this one trio did not succeed where the noble sent them, you know, on that quest doesn't mean it's going to stop. You know, it doesn't mean there's not going to be another group of bounty hunters or whatever that are going to come out and, and have his, uh, his death on their mind. Yeah. He's, he's always constantly playing chess and thinking of what pieces he can use and pull in. And like you said, that is why he's king. The real hero of the story is the king, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'd like to see book two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The prequel, the sequel, the same story just from the king's point of view kind of thing. Yeah. I think that... That would be interesting. I think just in, in the last, what, like five, ten minutes of us talking about it, the king is really fascinating to me now. Yes, I agree. I think it's odd because we came into this with two really fleshed out characters that we were really um, excited to see where they led. And all they did was lead us to this ancillary character that kind of took over any future narrative. Yeah. And the one character that did survive that we were really interested in and invested in Instantly just became a pawn. Yeah, his happy ending didn't really become that much of a happy ending um, in the end. Well, I mean, we didn't we didn't actually determine what no what will happen. You know, we it's it's all it's all conjecture 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 conjecture. Yes, it's all guessing at this point. It's all it's all spitballing at this point. <laughs> um, yes. So it, it could like it could be perfect. Like he could just spend the rest of his days um being waited on hand and foot by some priestesses of, of the, the wood elf deity of life until he rots away, you know, and he gets prayers over him every every night and sure. and he gets bathed in, in lavender scented holy water. Or he is patient zero. You know, it's yeah. the difference between the critical failure or the critical savior. Like I could see that being our critical failure. That would be very interesting. 
especially with what we have as the critical failure for that resolution roll, which you're not going to hear until we roll one. <laughs> so don't ask. That's right. Um, but I think it would fit. I think it would fit nicely. And honestly, yes. if we had rolled that, that one, I don't know what else I would have done. I don't think I would have come up with that idea, but I don't know, know what I would have come up with for that critical failure, that specific one. I'm interested to see what that would have been just because it's, it took us a little bit to get to that point. So coming up with it just on the fly, like, like you did with the, the conclusion that we had, uh, that would have been tough. It was the right roles in the right order and your pieces and, and our building of these characters to all fit together. Yep. If we had rolled one differently. Yep. It could have been a, just a, such a drastically different story. And that's what I really like about this idea is that it's, it is so by the seat of our pants that that could be another, um, another subtitle for the, uh, for the podcast is by the seat of our pants. Dice by the seat of our pants. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like that. Um, so anything else, anything you want to do to wrap that up? I think we're, we're pretty solid on this story. Yeah, no, I think the, the story is great. I'd like to hear what everybody has to say. Obviously, you've heard us kind of go on a little bit about the, the story and what could be the future for Merle. And if you have any suggestions or anything that you, any next step that you can see, We'd love to hear what what you think out there as well. Yeah, how would you have resolved the selfish ending, that very last resolution role? Yep. How would you have done it? I'd, I I would love to see answers to that. Um, and don't think too much on it. Just just let it come out. I mean, that's we're for we force ourselves to do it that way. Yep. So I I I challenge you, the listener, to do it as well. I think that's some of the best that off the cuff idea kind of stream of conscious thing i think that sometimes that comes up with the best results and that's honestly that's what a really solid dm can do if they're they're given just a single thing as a prompt and then they can pull something really cool out of their their dice bag we'll say definitely and luckily we're asking you to reply on social media and you know it's uh common nature not to think too much before you post so (laughs) there you go stream of consciousness perfect all right that wraps it up for this narrative arc this first round here so we will uh we'll see you in a week and we're gonna start all over again yep three new characters three new characters and a whole new story yep awesome thanks so much for taking the time to listen to rigged the random idea generator cast you can find me at ogscomics.wordpress.com. You can find us, as well as other casts in the Feckless Momes family, by heading on over to fecklessmomes.com. You can reach out to us at the site or directly by email at momes at fecklessmomes.com. Please, if you do like the show, rate and review us wherever you catch our casts. Subscribe while you're there, sneak onto your friends' phones, and subscribe there too. Rigged is a production of the Feckless Momes Audio Network.
It was hosted by Matt and Nick McGill. It was produced by Nick McGill. Logo art by Matt McGill. You can find links to the materials we use in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.